continuing on in our reading through Psalm 119. If you'd like, you can turn to Psalm 119. We'll be looking at verses 17 through 24 as that portion of God's word read this evening. Considering Psalm 19 as that understanding of the law that comes now through God's gracious work of freeing from the curse of the law and showcasing his goodness, his wisdom, truth, and beauty in the law as that form of life which the new heart yearns for. Which is to say, it is essentially the Lord Jesus Christ set forth as the one into whose image and likeness we are being transformed and the one whose image and likeness we long to bear more and more. For we have seen its loveliness by God's grace and we yearn for this work of grace to continue and one day to be all in all. And so we read Psalm 119 verses 17 through 24. Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. I invite you to join me as we ask the Lord's blessing upon the portion of, our word, of God's word which will serve as our sermon text this evening. Father, we do utter our yes and amen to your servant's testimony. That there is a loveliness on display in the law that calls for wholehearted love of you and a wholehearted love of neighbor. For this is the manner of life and indeed the content of the life that the Lord Jesus Christ lived. And how lovely and how good it is. And we know that this life only comes about as we feed upon the word of life. The Lord Jesus Christ, who now rules and reigns over us by his word and his spirit. And so we ask that as we turn our attention to your word and consider the wonder of salvation, that you save it all, that you would place us in awe at the glory that you have made known in extending salvation to ruined and lost sinners. Build us up in faith 
overflow our hearts with songs of thanksgiving and, and praise and worship. For you have done this, and we are the beneficiaries. And for this we give you thanks. For we pray in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. take Ephesians 1, 3 through 5 as our starting point for scripture, and then I'll read Westminster Shorter Catechism question 20, which will supply the content for our meditation this evening. But first, this is the word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to to the purpose of his will. Thus ends the reading of God's word. In Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 20 asks, did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? God, having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a Redeemer. If you consider the flow, the progression of the Catechism, uh, you can recall uh, the last three questions as uh, setting the stage, as it were, for question 20. In question 17, it asks, uh, into what estate did the fall bring mankind? And the answer, the fall brought mankind into a state of sin and misery. And then it goes on to detail the sinfulness of that estate, consisting in the guilt of Adam's first sin and the corruption of the entire man. And then it goes on to detail the misery of that estate, consisting in the forfeiture of communion with God, the presence of God's wrath and curse, being subject to all the pains of this life, to death itself, and the pains of hell forever. It's a desolate landscape. It's an utterly desolate Landscape. It's an utterly desolate condition. It's an utterly helpless condition. It's an utterly hopeless condition. And in that moment of the violation of the covenant, when God is pronouncing upon man, there, there is a moment before God reveals the promise of life that there is no hope on the horizon. That by all considerations, everything should have been lost. By the considerations of 
what had been revealed, the truth of the covenant of the Lord. On the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Consideration of the terms and the agreements of that covenant. There was no provision for failure. He had every reason to succeed, but there was no provision for failure. By the lawful terms of the relationship into which man had entered with God, should have been desolate, permanently. And so this question should have a ring of the unexpected to it. And the degree to which it doesn't ring as something wonderfully surprising is probably the degree to which we've lost some awe at the fact that God saves anyone. In the face of the plain testimony of God's word, the lavish goodness that he has poured out upon mankind in man's treacherous response and withholding thankfulness and praise, God is not bound to save anyone. And yet we read here that it isn't just sin and misery as the exclusive lot of man. That indeed there is something different Something other than the brutal reality of guilt and corruption, estrangement and wrath and curse, sickness and death and disease and a fate worse than de death hanging over everyone. There's something else. There's hope. There's salvation. And that's how this question opens. I actually like Westminster Larger Catechism 30 better because it captures more of the surprising element than our question does. Question larger asks, does God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? And then it answers, God does not leave all men to perish in the estate of sin and misery into which they fell by the breach of the first covenant commonly called the covenant of works. Surprise. <laughs> he doesn't leave mankind in this condition. Surprise. He doesn't leave mankind in sin and misery. Unexpected. What a wonderful development. And that's the first point. Salvation should astonish. The fact that eternal blessedness comes to anyone is remarkable. And it is to the praise of God's glorious grace. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, God has not appointed us for wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, by every natural consideration available to us, by the plain testimony born against our hearts, to the corruption that we continue to bear about in us. The plain testimony that none of us does what we ought to do to the degree that we ought to do it. None of us refrains from that from which we ought to refrain to the degree to which we should refrain. The fact that still the word comes, you have not been appointed to wrath, but to salvation. Should never lose its wonder to us. 
For this is due to God's sovereign grace and mercy, and that alone. Imagine that thieves came and assaulted you and your family and threw you out of your home. They begin to destroy your home before your very eyes. And they set it to blaze, the life that you had built. It's not just brick and wood, tile and lamps. It's an arena of meaning. And there it is, set a light before your eyes. And then they get trapped in the blaze. There's a certain sense in which justice would compel you to watch the fire. By any reason of justice, to watch them trapped in the inferno and the crime that they perpetuated, it rings fitting. It rings right that they've reaped what they themselves have sown. Now, maybe kindness compels you to make a phone call to the fire department. Maybe you even make an effort to open the door. But to bring your whole family back into the blaze and to perish in the flames so that the perpetrators may escape, that is an act of otherworldly love. That God saves any of these enemies, any sinner who has set his good creation ablaze, that he extends to anyone something other than justice or even tempered kindness is a wonder too great for words. And that he does so at the cost of the beloved son upon Calvary is an infinite wonder that eternity will not exhaust. And yet so frequently our hearts look at it with a sort of blasé passivity. Our hearts Look upon an infinite wonder which angels long to see. That's what Peter said in 1 Peter 1, verse 12. Angels long to look upon God's work of salvation. We see it week in and week out at the table declared from the pulpit Jesus Christ instead of sinners. And we contend with a dim apprehension. We contend, at least in part, with a heart that is influenced by a world which views God through an air of presumptuousness. How dare he be anything other than kind to me according to the terms and the conditions of what I understand kindness to be? And so there's a word of warning in the face of the wonder that God saves that we're all vulnerable to a presumptuous heart, aren't we? 
And we feel something of that presumption creep in any time that God deprives us of anything. And we inclined towards grumbling, complaining, shaking our tiny fists in the face of the one who has purposed to do us eternal good in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's when we're rightly seeing the truth of man's helpless and hopeless estate in the state of sin and misery that we're properly primed to understand and to tackle the wonder that God saves at all. It's when we see the utter desolate landscape of the ruin into which man had plunged himself that we're better positioned to hear the who and the how of God's free salvation worked by God to the praise of his glory and grace. And so the question poses for us, who does God save? Whom does God save? Whom does God save from this state of sin and misery, according to the question? God, having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity, elected some to everlasting life. Whom does God save? God saves the elect. God saves those whom he chooses to save. God saves those upon whom he has set his inexplicable love and mercy out of his mere good pleasure. Now, the truth of this doctrine is plainly stated in Scripture, but it assaults us at a fundamental level, doesn't it? There is a double assault in this doctrine. It assaults us as creatures who would rather be God, and it assaults us as sinners who have forfeited every claim upon his everlasting goodness. But the truth is plain, and we heard it in our Scripture this, mo this evening, didn't we? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Whom does God save? Whose choice is salvation, ultimately, at the end of the day? Who are the recipients of these incredible mercies? Who are the ones to whom the blessedness of belonging to God comes in the due course of history? Scripture could be no plainer. There is no initiative from man to God that is conceivable in the condition of sin and misery. There is no motion towards life from one in whom death reigns. There is no motion towards light in whom 
in those whom darkness is all in all. There's no motion towards health in one who is irretrievably sick. There is no motion from sinful, fallen man towards the living and true God in and of himself, conceived of as a fallen creature. And so when Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, he is saying, praise be to God who saves us for we could not conceivably have saved ourselves. There is no scenario where retrieving ourselves from this willful ruin was possible. So the doctrine that is plainly set forth in this question that God, out of his mere good pleasure, electing some unto everlasting life, is a wonder to behold as God is seen in the glory of who he is as sovereign and as merciful as one who did not leave Adam's helpless race to the ruin that they had preferred but one in his sovereign who in his sovereign prerogative makes known his glory in the sovereign choice that he makes in taking some unto himself for salvation. If God's sovereign choice is here set forth as the absolute cause for why salvation comes to any, we can also highlight the fact that it's not due to anything that God saw in the creature upon whom he had mercy. Titus brings this out plainly. Titus 3, verses 4 through 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What's profiled throughout that? Goodness. God's goodness. God's loving kindness. God as Savior. God as merciful. God as pouring out blessing richly through the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior, God who makes us heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's God and his pure, unadulterated grace, mercy, kindness, love, goodness, which is profiled as the reason for bestowing salvation upon any. It is not that he perceived in any recipient of mercy some particular reason enticing forth God's mercy by necessity. It is free. It is sovereign. It is a plain attestation to a goodness, a mercy, a kindness that is otherwise difficult to properly understand. So when 
We hear that God is pleased to elect some. Scripture is quick to say that the reason that he elected in many ways is unbeknown to us. It is hidden in his inscrutable will, but we know that it is because he is good, because he is loving, because he is merciful, because he is gracious, and he freely bestows that upon those who have no rightful claim to it. For we had all set ourselves up as enemies. But how do we come to know that we are elect? How does it work itself out? in the passage of time. Acts 13, verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Picture here is the gospel going forth to people who would not know the true and living God. These are Gentiles. These are not Israelites who had the promises, who had the law, who had the testimony, who had the signs and the seals. These were people who hadn't known. And so the gospel goes forth to them that all men are guilty in their sins, but God has made provision for sinners. The Lord Jesus Christ crucified but raised and now proclaimed to the ends of the earth as the pardon and the peace that men desperately need but cannot come upon through any other means, this Christ is proclaimed to you as salvation. Come unto him and live. And who came unto him? As many as were appointed to eternal life. These believed. The evidence that played out there before the apostles as they carried this message to the ends of the earth as to whom God had placed his love and kindness upon is here shown in the response of faith to that gospel which goes forth. There's a popular image that's used to grapple with the mystery of election and the truth of scripture that plainly sets forth Christ and would plead with all human beings to believe would plead with all human beings to be reconciled to this God, would plead with all human beings to see Jesus Christ as the provision for sinners. And as we grapple with these two realities, which are both plainly attested in Scripture and both enshrined in our own confession and catechisms, the image that sets forth is the image of Christ coming as a door saying, come unto me, come unto me and live. And just as the passage in Acts 13 put forth, there are some who come. And walk through this door, this one who is the way and the truth and the life. And written on top of the door says those very words, come unto me and live. And as you pass through the door, you turn around and you look. And on the back side of the door, on top of the frame, reads, elect from the foundation of the world. Chosen before time. The wonder of the testimony of scripture is that the plainest indication of your election, my election, is not in the inscrutable reality of God's hidden decree, but in the fact that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. For none would believe of their own accord 
Blessed are you. Flesh and blood has not revealed to you that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And consider the encouragement that that brings. Consider the strength that that brings to the heart when you look upon the evidence of your election as something as frail as faith. <laughs> and you see the flickers of faith and you know the truth of your faith that it is often beset by much weakness. That it's often cut with doubt and frailty and an inconstant heart that is battered about by the temptations of the world and the foul suggestions of the enemy who had convinced you that you're still under the wrath and the curse of God, and yet you believe. You say yes and amen to the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. You say, no, this one has died. However frail you say it, however weak you say it, you have in the fact of acknowledging that Jesus Christ is Lord and believing in the one that raised him from the dead. In that fact, you see the truth of God's election from eternity past. And you realize the reality of your faith is built upon something far surer, far stronger than it feels at any given moment. For it not only has come to you as the reward earned by the Lord Jesus Christ, it comes to you as the outworking of God's eternal decree. And there is nothing that I have found, there's nothing that I suggest that any of you may find that is more foundational than the decree of God. So if you stand here, sit here, believing that Jesus Christ is Lord, take heart, for only those appointed to eternal life truly believe. And so we can ask last, which is how the question ends, how does God bring this salvation to a ruined and helpless people? And we're told two things. We're told that he is pleased to do so by entering into a covenant of grace, and he is pleased to do so by a redeemer. And this is going to provide the structure for essentially the rest of the catechism as it flushes out what it means to be in a covenant of grace and how that grace comes to us and the means of grace and what it looks like to live in that covenant and not just that, but who this Redeemer is. I'll draw attention just to two quick points. First is that the covenant of grace plainly contrasts with the covenant of works. You read the confessions and you're going to see a two-covenant structure. In history, there was the first covenant made by Adam, which is commonly called the covenant of works. And when man had forfeited blessedness by his ruination in that covenant, God was pleased to make with them a second covenant. But it wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't a plan B. It wasn't something that God simply made up on the fly when he saw that the first attempt had failed. Rather, the covenant teaches plainly here as we're already led to believe in the truth of election from all eternity. That this covenant of grace 
has an eternal foundation in a pact that was struck between the Father and the Son. The Father promising to glorify the Son and to give unto him a people, and the Son promising to make full repair of the breach that had opened up between man and God and their violation of the law, and to uphold the claims of justice as God's word of death was brought to bear not upon man, but upon the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the eternal foundation of this covenant of grace. And thus, insofar as we are concerned, as we've already had an opportunity to herald, what comes to us is grace. <laughs> what comes to us from God in the person of the Redeemer is pure gift. It's free gift from front to back, from top to bottom. There is nothing that we bring to the table in salvation. There is much that takes place in you. That's true in the outworking of salvation. But there is nothing that you contribute as your own to this gift being brought home to you and seen unto completion. That's plain in any number of passages, but we can look at the passage we looked at this morning. In Ephesians 2, ending with 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The main difference between reformed, a reformed doctrine of salvation and almost every other doctrine of salvation that I have encountered is that in the reformed doctrine of salvation, Jesus doesn't just make salvation possible. He actually saves. Jesus saves. He doesn't just open the door of the flaming house. He runs into the flaming house and he carries people out of the flaming house to the praise of the glory of our triune God. You say, well, don't we believe? Yes, you believe. And this is a gift of grace. It says it. It's right here. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Faith is a gift. Yes, faith is a condition of the covenant of grace, but certainly not in the same way that works were a condition of the covenant of works. It is a sine qua non of salvation, a without which there is not of salvation. There is no salvation apart from faith, but even faith is supplied to you. For apart from that gift, none would believe. Are there good works in the covenant of grace? Yes, there are. It is plain. It's right here. But even those are Christ's gift to us being enjoyed by that same faith which he supplies. From front to back, you will find nothing which you contribute. And the reason is plain. It says it right here. I have no idea how anyone reads these verses any other way. So that no one may boast. As much lexical dancing that I've heard theologians of different persuasions do, well, you can't boast in surrendering. 
You can't boast in throwing up your arms. It's like, well, then why did you do it and they did it? Why did you experience that and they didn't? Well, because. <laughs> because he had grace. Mm -hmm. Because his sovereign prerogative was to save you. Because he's wonderful. The reason why we declare this doctrine so intensely is not to be curmudgeonly Calvinists. It's because God's glory is at stake. If Christ doesn't save from front to back, if it's, it's not his work and his life and his ministry, which is comprehensively set forth as that which saves, then there's reason to boast in something else. And God will have no one boast in anyone or anything other than the Redeemer of God's elect, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ says this plainly when he comes and he says, the Son of Man came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's the same word that sits at the heart of redeem, redemption, redeemer. If you go to the store and you pay for an item, is that item yours potentially or actually? If you have a wealthy friend who pays off your mortgage or your student loans, are you debt-free potentially or actually? Setting forth Christ as the Redeemer here emphasizes that Christ does not accomplish a potential salvation. Christ actually saves to the praise of God's glorious grace. Do you believe this? Run to him, for he is God's provision to a ruined and helpless race. Let's pray. We give you thanks for the glorious grace that you've extended unto sinners. Help us, Father, to stand in awe of this. We know that this life will never afford a full glimpse into the wonder, but we would desire to see it clearer. We would desire to know more and deeper of the excellencies of who you are and what you have done for us though we had no claim upon you be pleased father to press these things upon our heart keep us from resting in anything other than the lord jesus christ make known the wonders of his life as we live by faith in him we pray in his name, amen.